it's an interesting question as to whether life is about the pursuit of happiness or, or not. Um, plenty of um, stoic branches of philosophy that might suggest otherwise. Um, but irrespective of whether happiness is a kind of an outcome or not, I think um, I probably have felt most alive and most exhilaratingly alive um, and most grateful to be alive um, when I've put myself in positions of extreme uh, discomfort and, and, and overcome those. And so now I sort of I feel like that's the um, that's the that's the, the pattern of a life worth living. Somebody um, quoted to us the other day um, a, a line I think from Ecclesiastes um, uh, that um, was along the lines of. Um, uh, like um, you know harmony in, in, in one hand is better than toil in two or something like this and um, it's just the absolute opposite of um, my thinking about uh, an attitude to life yeah toil in two hands that was Nat Cheshire and this is Dougat the podcast Welcome to episode 54 of Dug It, the podcast with Nat Cheshire. And today's episode is brought to you by technology and human ingenuity. I'm just looking at this Rode microphone that's in front of me and my Zoom recording device, this laptop, the desk that I'm at, all this technology around me that lets me put this podcast out into the universe. And really just so much gratitude for that. That's hundreds and millions of people and hundreds and thousands of years that it's taken to get to this point where I can just share a message with anyone across the planet for free, quite literally. So just feeling gratitude for everything that's gone into making this podcast a reality. It's such a great one too with Nat Cheshire stepping into discomfort and creating fulfilling life, which leads me to my next sponsor, not the first one was a sponsor, was it? It was just a, a sense of gratitude, a thought of gratitude. But my next sponsor is me with my new course, Divine Masculine. And in talking with Nat, it really reminded me of the need for role models, for accountability, for living a purposeful life, how important it is and how we're lacking that guidance in the world. I've been doing some great training with Preston Smiles, who's a leader in this space, and I just really want to share the teachings I've learned with all the men that are out there who are struggling, maybe not living to their fullest. As men, we can just kind of wait till tomorrow. We can think, you know, one day my girlfriend will stop complaining. One day I'll be in the right job. One day I'll start working on my dreams. But that one day never comes around. And every week we should have accountability. We should be checking in with friends who are holding us to a higher standard, who are not letting us settle for mediocrity. We should be taking action, 
talking, connecting with our feminine and the divine masculine before it's too late. And death comes around sooner than we think. I think it's just this illusion that we have. You read all the great books and life is short. And so let's not wait. I want to help people take action. This is what this podcast is all about, thinking less, experiencing more. I think the need for men to step up in the world is so needed right now and to do it in a really connected, mindful and masculine way, which is so different to so many of the role models we see on TV and around us. So to find out more about that course, check it out on my website. I'll be posting about it some more starting in the new year, January 1, kicking it off, coming in hot. And coming in hot as anything is today's guest, Nat Cheshire. For those who don't know Nat, he is an extraordinary architect, but he's more than an architect. He's a transdisciplinarian. Is that even a word? I think it is. And a philosophizer, a I'm just making up words, but he's he's a real <laughs> a real considered thinker. I don't even think he has his architecture license, but he's making the world a better place in so many ways. He engages in so many projects in architecture, design, operating across fields of luxury, austerity, newness and age, roughness and refinement, as uh, described on his wonderful website. He helped create Brinamart and catalyze a whole transformation of Auckland's kind of inner urban area and a resurgence in real appreciation of design and great spaces in the city. He also helped and he's continuing to develop CityWorks Depot into this just amazing spot in the middle of Auckland City. He has won Home of the Year, multiple design awards. Um, the, the, the Twin Cabins, which won Home of the Year and the Kuiper Harbour are just fantastic. You have to check them out. I'll put that in the show notes. But what I really love about Nat is his curiosity for life and willingness to keep putting himself in the discomfort and to settle for nothing less than extraordinary and to give up perfection and to take action. And it was such an inspiring story. He started his first practice, I think it was when he was 19, just got straight in there and he now has a daughter Florence and I love that one of his real motivations is to really help her be a fantastic beautiful human being and that's what I want for you all and hopefully this podcast will help take you there so without further ado here is the man himself Nat Cheshire. Um, uh, what what you're just kind of talking about that uh, like transitioning to a different phase in terms of the capacity of work you can handle um, and I remember in some of the interviews I've listened to before with you the getting up at 4am and being in the office or on site before everyone else what's, what's your current morning look like particularly with having a, a child now as well Oh, it's so uh, kind of intensely variable. Um, I think about two or three months ago, I found myself setting my alarm for 2 a.m., which was like a new low or high, depending on how you look at it. Um, uh, and for the two years before that, um, 
uh, it was my daughter who would wake me up, and that would be at 3.30 or 4.30 or 5.30 or whatever. Um, and right now, um, I don't know. I've just come out at the tail end of um, a really, really um, substantial nine months of endeavour, and um, Florence is sleeping, and so I woke up at half past six this morning. Sleeping. <laughs> yeah, so I should, should yeah. yeah. And so tomorrow, who knows? Yeah, another battle to fight. Oh, fantastic. And um, I always like to start my mornings with gratitude, and I don't know, is there anything you're particularly grateful for at the moment? Mm, I think I start my mornings with fear. Um, but, uh, <laughs> A but, of both. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, there's, there's just an enormous amount to be grateful for, and I guess maybe I spend too much time focusing on what I should do with those things for which I ought to be grateful um, rather than the gratitude itself you know I think um, I'm the beneficiary of some extraordinary uh, opportunities and uh, uh, the urgency for me is to not squander those is that okay? yeah I'm just uh, double checking the, the levels but I think that all looks um... test 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 Great. one two three <laughs> four five um, yeah, because you talked about this unique place and time which we've been born into and, and that you've got the opportunity to really transform the city and you kind of always strike me as someone that's got a, a, a greater purpose than just building buildings. Well, have you got a, a, a definite vision or purpose or dream at the moment that's really pulling you through? Um, yeah, I think the, the kind of buildings are incidental they're, they're tools they're like paintings when I thought that art was a thing like they're, they're um, a kind of output but they're not the driver in themselves the driver is something kind of bigger than that and uh, it's really hard to pin down a driver that kind of meta that's substantial but uh, I feel like we have a real viable opportunity in fact I think we're in the thick of really substantially shifting the culture in which we live and shifting it forwards and um, uh, we're trying to do that on as many fronts as we possibly can the city is a really kind of um, uh, unique opportunity for us it feels like uh, there's a sort of chink in the armour that hasn't existed previously and we're sort of really aggressively exploiting that but um, we're, we're attacking that kind of question of how we live um, on a front much broader than that. You spoke just before about the little cabins and they're really kind of asking some very dis different questions and, in fact, making some quite aggressive propositions about um, how we live in a really different way from the, um, the way that our work in the city tackles that, that problem or that question. Um, and I don't really have a kind of bigger driver than just, like, get up in the morning and change shit, make, make things, right? And the um, kind of belief that in the doing so um, you'll discover the extraordinary and in fact the extraordinary resides in the doing rather than the outcome. So it's enough to just like get up and seize toil in two hands and go at it. Yeah, I love that um, aspiration for the extraordinary. I remember in advertising even a mentor saying no matter how big the job, big or small, what, what could you do to change that space um, and is there anything uh, have there been any mentors like you've worked with Peter Cooper and some really visionary kind of people is there, is there anything that's really struck you in terms of what 
someone that's visionary, how they behave, how they work, even even subconscious things you've picked up over time? Oh, so many. I'm surrounded by extraordinary women and men, and um, I always have been. And uh, that's been really, you know, those relationships have been really central to my own drivers. Um, ultimately, the kind of the most potent one is the um, the young guy that sends me a text message at four in the morning saying, "Get the fuck up, be prolific," um, and then sends it again the next morning, and then the next morning, and then you know, at two in the morning one night, uh, will write me three or four lines about. Um, uh, the kind of the, the the viability, the possibility, the reality of the future that I dream of, and um, but in amongst that, yeah, I, I just um, this is a city filled with extraordinary people doing extraordinary things, and you know I have the privilege of growing up the child of um, two of them, and you know in, in two very different ways, and um, surrounded by friends of theirs who were. Um, pursuing the extraordinary in different different ways and uh, you're right from the outset when the only opportunity I had was to make you know make of an old closet in Point Chev an ensuite for an elderly couple who no longer felt safe walking down the hallway to the bathroom in the middle of the night you know that was that was my first kind of real project um, right from there I, I kind of understood that um, the task was to um, to find opportunities for the extraordinary, not to, to wait for them to present themselves to you so that you could practice your thing, which would be extraordinary. You know, I grew up with people who would say to me, oh, your, your Pip's son, he's so lucky he gets all the best clients. And so I instantly realised that um, that the task, you know, 90% of the task was to find those people that would empower you to do your best work, not to, um, not to sit there kind of waiting for them. And I think that's probably the single biggest kind of driver, aside from that 4am invocation to work. Yeah, yeah I remember t- uh, talking to Dick Frizzell just on that about... I remember Chuck Close saying, uh, fools wait for inspiration and the rest of us get to work. Yeah, and precisely. You're always yeah. kind of battling through the grit. and Yeah, there's the such grit. a risk built into that because um, you start things with impunity and... Um, uh, without certainty that you're um, uh, that you've got the kind of level of resolution that you're going to demand of yourself, let alone what the world's going to demand of you. But it gets a bit easier over time, you know. I sort of feel like 20 years in, um, you know, I'm still alive and <laughs> it hasn't fallen over or failed yet. And so I feel a bit more comfortable walking into a room or a situation knowing nothing and believing that. Um, we'll be able to pull the extraordinary out of the air around us. Mm-hmm. Um, I know you're quite passionate about uh, helping young people as well, and part of this uh, course I've been working on is helping people identify their unique ability, mm-hmm. and that extraordinary people really are people who are tapped into their seven-year-old self or the thing that continually motivates and energises them, um, and they could do it all day and be even more excited at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And what do you think that unique ability is for you? Because you dabbled in a few things in the school system. Mm. I remember you saying uh, you, you battled with that, but you've obviously found a niche or do you really try and narrow your focus into a particular area where you think you're really strong? 
No, I guess if anything, I'm trying to expand that area. Um, and, you know, if I tap into my child self, I think the kind of um, the value that I derive from that is the kind of rocket fuel of um, fighting back against um, all of the things that I felt were imposed on me as a child. You know, I sort of felt, felt my childhood to be extremely kind of socially unsuccessful, maybe not at seven, but certainly at 17. Um, and so a huge amount of the kind of uh, driver was to, um, to prove all of that stuff wrong. Uh, and in a funny way, it kind of it persists in the form of um, continually proving to myself what I might be capable of. Um, whether that's kind of um, building more or bigger or differently or more aggressively or running over a bigger mountain or whatever. Yeah, that's the, that's the driver. But I don't think... Um, uh, I don't think the kind of formal output in terms of a discipline um, uh, is quite as relevant to me as the kind of general... Um, angle of attack mm -hmm. uh, like the way of thinking about um, problems and opportunities uh, the way of engaging in other human beings um, uh, the way of kind of synthesizing out of complexity some kind of singularity and being able to um, galvanize a large number of disparate people to the cause of that singularity and then make it exist in the world, force it into existence That that's the kind of that's the thing that I feel like I've got um, and whether that manifests itself in, in buildings or bits of city or um, something else altogether is almost um, kind of opportunistic rather than deliberate. Yeah, this is like really considered problem solving, was that? Yeah, yeah. And, and you've had an interesting path to get here and now you're working with your your family in terms of your dad um, and it's something I've just transitioned into and I had to reframe it for myself for I was kind of running away from it and then I thought well what a blessing to better learn and um, and to even spend more time with with my family how did you reframe that for yourself was um, there a, a, a point I think yeah I was really um, extremely worried about working with Pip I think um I had just managed to gain some momentum um, in private, not yet publicly, on my own um, when he left uh, the huge firm that he had built up and um, was determined to set out on his own and uh, invited me to join him. And, uh, you know, he's such a giant, I was terrified of walking the rest of my life in his shadow. And um, the history of architecture is littered with... Um, the children of great architects whose names you've never known. Um, but in the end I realised, uh, and probably quite quickly I realised that um, if I was good enough it wouldn't matter whose kid I was, and if I wasn't good enough then I should just be grateful for the opportunity. Um, and um, I am, yeah, I'm, I'm so grateful for that opportunity. And uh, it comes at a, at a cost, you know, in some ways uh, relationship as father and son have been it's been, it's been replaced with something else. Um, so in some ways, there's a kind of there's some loss built into that. Um, but ultimately, it's a privilege. 
yeah, an enormous privilege. Mm. And if you were a, 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 like someone listening to this would probably be quite inspired and, and if you were a really inspired, driven high school student or perhaps someone a little bit older, is there any advice or direction um, in terms of, because I love the idea of just making up as you go along and getting started and you started your first practice when you were 19, I believe I started putting work out into the world and do you think that is it, is just get started or? Oh yeah, look, one of, I found university quite frustrating in all sorts of ways, but um, one of the few very insightful things um, that a wonderful um, woman gently said to me was like, the problem with you Nat, is you um, you can outthink everything, so you um, uh, you see all of the flaws in your own thinking before you're able to execute on it, and you deny yourself in doing so the opportunity of discovering that which can only be known through doing, um, that which can only be revealed through doing, and so that was a real kind of um, a call to climb down out of um, the safe abstraction of um, intellectual thought and to um, throw that head first into the kind of mud and blood and dirt of doing um, and so um, I think there's a um, I think there's a beautiful uh, kind of golden mean in there between those two states of thinking and acting and um, I don't think it's terribly healthy to live permanently in either one of them um, and if ever one feels slightly too comfortable, one should pursue the discomfort of the other. I love that. That was actually, when I first started the podcast, I was trying to think of a, a sentiment or a line to sum it up, and I thought it's thinking less, doing more, because my trap was the same, and I think in, in the modern world there's so much information, it's so easy to get caught in our head. Oh, and, yeah, and, and, and that's, that's so fucking dangerous. Um, I think um, I think the thing is to run a kind of um, uh, a self-repeating cycle where, and it, you know, it's an completely analogous to the way that we transform bits of city. Is that um, uh, you look really closely at what already exists, whether it's in the in this bit of city, whether it's in Britomart City Works, Morningside, whatever, or in yourself, you know, talking about talking about the kind of development of self, um, and. You look at all of its complexities and all of its um, kind of problems and all of its opportunities, and um, you intuit from that uh, what seems like it might be the single strongest first move, and um, you pluck up the bravery to make that move, and then you sit back and you go, "On, oh, so now what's happened? Like, what's good about this? What's bad about this?" And you know, you don't, you don't, you don't wait till that move is kind of perfectly resolved in your mind before executing it, because there is there is no such kind of possible reality. You just execute it, knowing that it will be special but not perfect, and then you look at what impact it's had on the world or on yourself, and then you go, "Okay, that's the new context. What's the next move?" And then you run that move. And then you sit back and you look and you analyse and you make the next one. And before long, you've got, you know, you might start with um, one pub or repainting one wall, but before long, you've got a printer with thousands of people spewing out of it and, you know, operating as a kind of um, poster child for the potential of a, of a city. Um, but it's all built out of small moves like that. And I think um, the self is precisely the same, right? 
I think the, I think it's the book Bird by Bird, which is uh, it's a book on writing. It's right. Uh, it's kind of the whole approach of just write about one bird at a time or one word at sure. a time, and yeah. um, kind of expanding on that. They seem as some someone who's very like heart driven or sometimes not completely rational in terms of the way or approaching things from a different angle and, and then how do you kind kind of let your heart or your or some of those things that don't quite make sense on paper follow through on those mm. that kind of intuition I think um, I'm not heart driven I think um, it's a it's a it's a huge driver but um, everything that we do is extremely uh, kind of strategically driven it's tactical um, uh, it's heavily kind of examined and criticised but it's just that we don't let ourselves get bogged down in that and that um, at the core of everything we do is a kind of set of ethics and values and ambitions that, that, that drive it um, but uh, I think a, a little bit like that kind of um, uh, dialectic between uh, action and thought that I described previously. There's a kind of dialectic that, that um, swings all the time between um, acting uh, on intuition and um, understanding the real substance and scale of um, the endeavour that we're engaged in, you know, the projects that we're doing. Um, they might be quarter of a billion dollars in scale. They might um, have the future of um, uh, a bit of city at stake. Um, the cost of failure is usually very, very high. Um, a large number of human beings whose lives are indexed to the success or failure of what we do. And so we take that really, really seriously. Um, it's just that we take, um, we take our own uh, kind of... Um, intuitive sense seriously alongside that you know um, that in order to best do justice to that responsibility um, we have to make some room for the risky you know the risk filled leap of um, following uh, emotion not just intellect and what would be the biggest change since you become a father as, as well in terms of perhaps just personal life or your own practice and considerations as well um, even in terms of maybe sleep or mm. that that balance um, I think I'm not sure yet I think um, quite quickly I had a really clear sense that um, my own life didn't begin and end with my own birth or death anymore um, and in fact didn't necessarily belong to me anymore and that I, you know I could see my grandfather and my daughter and uh, that and, and not just kind of physically in the way that she interacted with the world and so that implied that there was a kind of there was a thing an unnameable thing that passed through us as a family of which you're a kind of fleeting manifestation and um, uh, uh, I, don't, I don't mean to get kind of too complex about that and I certainly don't mean to get spiritual about it but it just you know um, even as a kind of machine made out of meat uh, I don't feel quite so kind of start 
finish, it's all over. And so some of um, some of the uh, burdens I placed on myself in terms of things that needed to be uh, achieved, I think I now see differently. I now see part of something bigger and longer. Um, uh, and uh, I think my metrics of success have shifted towards um, building a world that is extraordinary and special and nurturing for um, our children rather than for ourselves. And I don't really mean that in the traditional kind of um, Greenpeace sense of making, leaving the world better for a future generation, you know, like the for when our children grow up to be us. I actually mean for our children as children um, because there's an extraordinary version of humanity that exists in that little precious um, very young age and in some ways it's like the best version of humanity <laughs> uh, and so that sits, in, that sits in my mind quite kind of clearly um, but I'm not sure what that stacks up to yet for the moment I'm just still pushing forwards Yeah, but it's interesting though how many really successful people often have a strong faith or spiritual practice or um, even just a deeper connection and awareness um, has that been something that you've always had or or have you had your own practice or faith or no I'm, I'm the absolute opposite I think the thing that I find um, most kind of uh, emotionally grounding is um, when I uh, am aware of a, my relationship with a broader cosmos but I mean that in the context of um, uh, a kind of layperson's engagement with uh, astrophysics and um, relativity and atomic theory and all those things that I can't possibly pretend to know anything about but the reading of which I find um, extremely centering uh, and so um, yeah, it's it's the kind of it's the substance of of being a kind of temporal assembly of atoms and amino acids and proteins and so on up the building block um, that I find you know that adds up somehow into a conversation like this and the endeavour that we're engaged in every day as being kind of so extraordinarily extraordinary that I find uh, more spiritual forms of um, ways of living. Uh, Personally unnecessary. Yeah. <laughs> I went to Gary V's talk recently and he said, you've already won the lotto just by being born. And and, um, and another teacher, Paul Check, he was saying to a friend on the weekend that, you know, how much do you think you had to do with being here, like creating this, meeting this person, your, your, your wife, um, when you just look at, consider the oh, infinite impossibilities. It's, it's oh, like the, the impossibility of a... Um, of a protein, let alone a human, is, um, is just beyond comprehension. And yet, you know, so you mentioned wife. I saw my wife out a bus window walking down the other side of the street for half a second. And, um, uh, um, you know, that encounter uh, was nothing of my construction. You know, I was open to it and I was open to um, kind of... Um, following that up, pursuing that. But, um, you know, I um, I was born and 
to this. Um, you know, I I have worked like a motherfucker to exploit leverage, do justice to every opportunity that has um, landed in front of me. But those opportunities have landed in front of me, and I went um, I went through school with. Um, uh, kids who, even as a six-year-old, I understood, um, would never have that opportunity. Um, and so I don't own any of this. I didn't make any of this. Um, uh, I have the privilege of kind of playing in it and using it. And so that's part of the drive. I like being here. In fact, if I'm going to squander it, you know, um, that's as big a driver as any. Mm. Yeah, I think going to a retirement home or something like that, you see regret and that's just a fuel for action. Well, personally, um, and like starting to look at building myself and, and I know like everyone I talk to is interested in owning a house and building and renovating. What do you think people don't often not consider or they miss out of their thinking? Um, oh, I think, I think um, real estate is really destructive. Um, it, it is enormously destructive of the way that we live. Um, you know, I think that what we do or are capable of doing is providing um, a stage for a life more beautiful than people can ever imagine for themselves. Um, and, um, uh, you know, by and large, that's considered to be kind of unattainable for um uh, for most of us, and for you know the, the brutal reality of um, New Zealand, alone in the world, is that it, it like it just it just is. Um, but even amongst the bourgeois, there's you know we make it inaccessible by um, uh, or unattainable by um, insisting on um, uh, a set of kind of amenities and real estate metrics measured in numbers of bathrooms and car parks and square metres and um, uh, bedrooms and so on, uh, that um, that leaves no room for um, the extraordinary, which is actually um, uh, you know, well within grasp. And I think one of the things that was exciting, most exciting about that little project in the Kuiper that you mentioned earlier was um, that we found... Uh, an enlightened patron who understood that um, just how easily scale and amenity was transferable for the extraordinary and if they were um, prepared to sacrifice some of the things that um, uh, a real estate market demanded of them then they could live like an um, they could live like an emperor um, you know a, a, you know an emperor of their own making um, uh, you know albeit in 29 square meters uh, it's, it's you know, it's a, it's a 29 square metres like no other. Um, and those, those sort of cabins, you know, they cost as much as a, as a good Audi. Um, and we just, it's just, it's all right there. Um, but um, nobody's prepared to pick it up. Yeah. Well, and I think we're hit with social media, we're hitting to, it seems to be more conformity and more fitting in in terms of our, our thinking and do you have ways to kind of challenge your own um, ruts that you kind of often go down 
Oh, you're one of them is to not engage in that media. Um, you know, the great, like, really kind of avant-garde Japanese architect Toyoito when he was here a decade ago. Somebody asked him, you know, if you got one piece of advice for students, what is it? And he said, don't read magazines. You know, so that maybe it was more than a decade, the age before blogs, the age before Instagram. Um, uh, you know, our shelves are filled with books, not with magazines. Um, uh, I think... Um, uh, ooh, I think there's a, it's a double-edged sword because it's also um, that media is also extremely powerful in a way that is informative and empowering of many and so for example we almost never now receive a client in a domestic context at least and almost certainly a fit-out context who doesn't turn up with a Pinterest board of some kind. And, um, you know, it's really easy to kind of scoff at it, but what it means is that you have um, a kind of uh, a, a, a lay population that is increasingly design literate and who is increasingly emotionally and intellectually engaging in the possibilities of design. And so, um, you know, I, I'm fundamentally, I think, optimistic and, you know, I've, the the question or the answer I ended before I felt uncomfortable about because I said, you know, people are just not picking it up with respect to the kind of opportunity that lies in front of them. But I think um, I think that's not necessarily true. I think increasingly um, we are. I think one of the potent things about social media is that um, it allows for the amplification, the enormous amplification of very small things. And so um, uh, the tiny house movement is one example of that um, and there's a level of interest in, in that kind of scale of work that seems reasonably unprecedented um, but also there are um, you know those little cabins we did in the Kaipara um, you know they're they were set fire to, they're burnt, they're, they're burnt, they're charred black and when we did that, that was um, that was something that nobody seemed to know anything about and it was something that we really couldn't find any information on it just kind of barely existed in the world except as an archaic Japanese kind of methodology um, um, and there was there was one guy in particular um, using a very painstaking um, analog method of you know lashing paper between two strands of wood and setting fire to that um, uh, in Japan in the 70s and that was about all we could find and now um, you know everything in the world is charred, is charred black and it's not necessarily that the cabins are the catalyst for that but um, ideas, materials, processes like that transfer at a rate that is um, that is unprecedented uh, and I think by and large that's a really good thing it is, it is perhaps normalising uh, in some senses but it also is liberating in others yeah, that reminds me of the I think the studies they did with ravens where they taught raven, ravens skills in captivity and they would suddenly mm-hmm. we learn on other sides of the world and same thing with innovation there's like yeah. a, um, a there's some kind of connection which yeah. connects us all and, and yeah. like do one thing and suddenly it's popping up oh, <laughs> everywhere look, look you know um, uh, I walked into Muji and kind of picked up a catalogue or flicked through their website or something and um, found um, an almost 
you know, and I was in, in New York or Tokyo um, in, in that store and um, found a cabin that Muji is kind of designing and making and selling that is um, kind of 70% the same as, as those cabins, right down to the green gumboots and the straw brush leaning against the wall that our friend kind of placed there for the for the photography of those cabins. You know, there's just like, uh, yeah, it, it just, um, things, little tiny things like that, a little, a little holiday cabin for um, a young couple of friends and a bit of leftover farmland in the back end of the country that nobody pays any attention to, in a country that nobody pays any attention to, all of a sudden has um, a really kind of powerful global currency. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that, that's pretty exciting, you know, for for you and I and anybody else engaged in um, uh, making something uh, in this part of the world. We don't have to leave anymore in order to be impactful. Mm. And you mentioned books before. Are there any that, that stand out, and not just in architecture, but in philosophy? And like, you seem like someone that's really very well read and that you're always curious. And Yeah, I find those, like, those really hard questions to answer. <laughs> um, it's like, you know, what's your favourite song? Um, <laughs> uh, and, um, uh, you know, I'm torn all over the place in terms of reading. Um, and I don't think I have a kind of singular um, a singular touchstone. I just think that the act of reading in itself um, is something for which I've found no equal in human existence. Um, How do you position that in your day? Do you book in reading time or do you...? Uh, I, um, by and large... When we retreat to bed each evening and uh, I retreat into darkness with a little um, Kindle and lie in the dark for maybe only 20 minutes before I fall asleep. But um, uh, that's that's a kind of constant. Um, I'm reading Proust at the moment, and so it's a really, really long constant, <laughs> um, which is quite lovely because it feels like a kind of... Um, the book, you know, it's so enormous that it feels like a place that you go to rather than a thing that you read from beginning to end. Mm-hmm. Um, and that, that that's quite a different reading experience for me. Um, uh, I think I'm probably guilty of buying a large number of books and um, skimming through many of them and then zeroing in and really, really um, tunneling into a few of them. Um, there was one, uh, there are a number that have been kind of powerful for me, I guess. There was a, um, a tiny little book of Pips when I was a child on Japanese castles that just um, my reaction to was always kind of bodily. Uh, you know, it was physical. I could, you know, it was really exciting. I had no way of articulating what was exciting about it, but um, uh, there was something kind of plastic in it. Um, uh, that has never left me. It's the only kind of memory I have of architecture having any kind of um, presence like that in my young life. Um, And then uh, as a student, there's a little tiny book by an architect called Peter Zontor called Thinking Architecture, um, which is not, um, it's neither aggressive nor um, noisily profound, but it is just a very beautiful, quiet, 
study on um, uh, the sensitivities of architecture and how they might be worked. That I, um, it's a book I return to maybe every two years. Mm-hmm. But in amongst that is um, mountains of um, uh, economics and um, uh, science and fiction and um, painting and art theory and. Um, Think, uh, I think that diversity is as important as anything. Mm. And uh, are there any other investments that have really stood out, investments in time or money or even a, perhaps a course that have been most impactful? It's a really good question. I don't think there's a kind of singularity. I just think that there is a kind of, um, there are two things. One is a kind of fullness, and the other is the quality of the things that make up that fullness. Um, So uh, the investment was not so much my own, but when I was um, 15, going on 16, I left. the very uh, straight, tough, academic boys' school that I was at and um, went to a school which had just started called Senior College and I think it was, I think I was the second or third year of that school's existence and um, that sort of saved my life in some ways. Um, you know, I, well, the thing that drove me away from the, the prior school was, um, as much as anything, was... Um, my disdain for who I was becoming, um, not necessarily just what it was. And um, uh, this little school in the city that um, treated us as um, adults and that put us in the middle of the city as adults with agency, um, uh, that, was, yeah, that, was, that was profoundly changing in, in an enormous number of ways, as were many of the teachers in that place. Um, going to art school instead of um, pursuing a kind of uh, uh, a profession, a, you know, a career stream, a, a, you know, or at least a kind of a regular career stream, um, that was extremely important because that was the kind of the first time in which I as an extremely kind of timid um, person uh, seized hold of something that I wanted to do um, irrespective of the likely outcome mm-hmm. um, and uh, although I stayed there only a year it was an extraordinary year um, but aside aside from um, uh, things like that I think um, every time I say yes instead of no and every time I stay up instead of going to sleep and every time I pull out a book instead of my phone uh, I get something and every time I do the opposite of that I I lose something Um, and so I think the thing that the most valuable in investment uh, is just that continuous investment investment in um, the kind of fullness of a life Um, and uh, the belief in the kind of 
potential embedded in the adventure. Mm. Love it. And as someone who's has a large staff now, <laughs> and um, there has been a transition from like traditional academia that a lot of uh, institutions like Google don't no longer require degrees for a lot of jobs. What particular skills or attitudes or even considerations do you look for in, in people to work with or to employ or to even for clients? Yeah, look, I think... Um, I don't really feel myself to have um, employees and, uh, and I, I'm not sure that I've ever even really used used that word. My word, I think what we have is a studio rather than an office and what we have done is to um, curate a collection of um, collaborators um, at various kind of um, at various levels and we have that curatorship is based uh, not at all on age or experience or qualification. Um, there are, you know, some of the most impactful people here might not even have been to architecture school, um, but they are by and large defined by um, a kind of ambition, level of ambition, a kind of hunger for the extraordinary and. Um, the grit and intelligence and self-knowledge and insight and discipline with which to aggressively, collaboratively pursue that ambition. Um, and you know very quickly when you encounter somebody like that and whether or not they have first class honours or a degree at all um, is irrelevant, irrelevant um, for me. It's not like that for most firms, I'm sure, but um, I don't even look at where somebody's been to school or what it is mm. that they've um, studied. I look at what they're doing and um, how they're doing it. Love it. And as someone who's in the mix of architecture 24-7, how do you take a break and celebrate the wins and I um I don't. <laughs> uh, partly because I think um, uh, I I am afflicted by very really um, believing uh, that I have uh, created a, a kind of win. I think I always um, am uh, engaged in the shortcomings of what we've done or the alternative possibilities of what we've done which is maybe a less negative way to think about it um, uh, but there are a few moments where um, I do feel like what we're doing stacks up to something and they're fleeting for me and maybe that's no bad thing because um, the kind of dissatisfaction is, is such a powerful driver if not of happiness of something else um, but those little cabins are a place where I feel a kind of peace that I don't feel anywhere else um, on earth like, you know they're the one place where I feel like um, I know what I'm capable of and it, it is now manifest in the world in a way that I'm really 
satisfied by um, or excited by. And so I find that very, very peaceful. Um, it's probably the only place I feel that peace. I feel a kind of acceleration um, sometimes, maybe two or three times a year I'll walk into Brindamart and there's like somebody walking down the street eating a hamburger out of a burger wrapper and, you know, at the micro scale, the little hand drawings of honeybees from Milton and um, bread being baked in an oven in Greyland and so on. Those little hand drawings are drawings that I drew on a big overturned roll of paper on my dining table at four in the morning five years ago. And so somebody's eating a burger out of that drawing and behind them and around them and under them um, is a world that I've had a really big hand in shaping and um, that's quite occasionally exciting but mainly mainly all of that which we have done is kind of is, is already dead for me and um, it's what we are now doing that I'm engaged in and are there any particular questions you'd like to ask yourself that help in that ability to create something special I know there's one from Peter Teal I love which was you know, how do I do my 10 years in 6 months or um, what, what What does he mean by that? So if I've got a 10 year goal how could I actually just rethink and, and make that a reality in 6 months yep. just to completely yep. flip my thinking because there's a, there's a great tool by a, a man named Dan Sullivan he said if you go 2x you're just trying to improve on what's been done before but if you go 10x you have to just reinvent the wheel mm. Um, mm. and another one that I, I like as well which is Tim Ferriss uh, what would this look like if it were easy mm. and so I don't know whether there's anything that mm. strikes yeah look I think um, oh there's, there's such good little um, epithets if that's the right word but um, uh I don't think I have little mantras like that driving around, but I do think um, uh, it is important to ask what you would do in this situation if you were not afraid of it, if you're not afraid of the implications of your actions. Um, and I often think that, you know, architecture is one of those, those weird things that it's sort of invisible as an art, really. Um, and by and large, the world doesn't want it to exist. It makes um, it makes the world much harder, more complex, less certain. It certainly makes construction, all of those things. Um, and nobody really wants it until the end. Um, maybe they want it at the very beginning. And then uh, at the end, if, if, if you have... Um, uh, if you have done your job properly, then um, you will have delivered people far more than they ever imagined they might get, but also you will have done justice ten times over to the endeavour that they themselves have contributed um, to to the project. Um, and so in the context of it not really being wanted, um, it's very easy to succumb to the attrition of um, of that, of being the person that always is 
challenging things and making them harder. And so the thing that I have to constantly kind of repeat is, um, am, I, am, I, am I just succumbing rather than kind of triumphing? Um, and yeah, that's, a, that's a constant battle, definitely. Especially as the stakes increase, you know? If, you know, if you're, if you're trying to maintain a degree of um, boldness and radicality, that's, that's one thing at the scale of a little cabin. It's another thing at the scale of an entire city block. Mm. Mm. I just love that idea of living above the line and, and love and possibility rather than fear and scarcity and... Yeah, I mean, I, I think I think the the fear is really important, <laughs> though, right? Like you just, um, uh, I think architecture is a little bit. It's like hubris mixed with fear, uh, leavened with fear, maybe hubris leavened with fear. Um, that um, the responsibility of it is so substantial that um, if if there isn't a fear, um, then you're probably either a psychopath or mm. um, you're not trying hard enough um, uh, I don't know if it was Andretti or um, which of the Formula One race car drivers um, who said that if everything is under control you're going too slowly I think there's a kind of corollary that says that if everything is out of control you're going too quickly um, but again there is there is this kind of perfect liminal place just beyond the threshold of your own comfort um, it's not so far out that um, your demise is imminent but not so close that um, comfort creeps up on you that's the place to live I love that because it's all where the flow research is and um, there's a great tool I've been using from Dan Sullivan and it's exactly that you write down all the possibilities but then also you imagine all the the worst of the worst and, and you draw it out into 10 years what it could do to every aspect of your life and, and mm. geez it's a it's a rocket fuel but yeah, yeah I bet it's terrifying uh, yeah if I, if I map out the worst case scenarios of everything that they're presently doing I would never do I could never do anything it's just um, it's too terrifying mm. um, yeah have you got a favourite failure or something and and in retrospect that's really been a, a blessing in disguise the easy answer to that is the kind of um, the social failure of my, my um, of my youngest self and the um, and the way in which I then converted that into determination um, and there's an interesting line that says like you know you're fucked if you peak at high school um, and it's not necessarily true, but I suspect it kind of largely is. <laughs> um, it'd be really good if you understood that when you were a kid, you know? Um, that actually, like, if this is the most popular that you get, that's, that's not a good outcome for a life. Um, that's a simple answer. Um, in terms of the work that we do, uh, I'm so haunted by the failures uh, I'm not sure that they make me a better designer uh, I know I know convention says that I should treat them as positives but um, they're just not you know <laughs> I mean, like maybe that's specific to architecture because um, 
the manifestations of our shortcomings are so enduring. You know, a decade later, they're still there. They're so extremely public. Um, uh, or maybe just, maybe I just have a really immature relationship with them. But no, I, I hate them. <laughs> <laughs> and just mindful of your time, so just two questions to, to wrap up. But if, if you were Prime Minister or you had uh, that kind of even more power than that to make drastic change in New Zealand and perhaps the world, mm-hmm. maybe it's not just an architecture, maybe somewhere else, is there anything you'd love to see become a reality? Oh, look, I think this is the... Um this is the age of the entrepreneur um, uh, for all sorts of reasons. And um, what I am extremely interested in at the moment is the way in which a kind of incredibly democratised media landscape uh, in which um, a kind of fury... Um, uh, in which the kind of tools of capitalism are more open than they've ever been, um, where small people can have a kind of voice that they've, you know, at a scale of which they've almost never had before. I'm really interested in the way in which um, that kind of open sourcing of capitalism can be um, uh, leveraged um, or, or kind of exploited um, to reconfigure what we consider to be um, uh, entrepreneurial success, corporate success, um, uh, what the metrics of capitalism um, are, and therefore how we might unlock the extraordinary energies and insights and intelligence um, of, um, uh, of maybe not all of us, but um, this kind of huge swathe of um, humanity that um, might only have been chasing the dollar because that's simply um, the kind of goalpost that had been set. And um, I don't think that that's a kind of a task that's in any way particular to my describing it. You know, it's, a, it's, a kind of, it's a transformation which is already um, well underway and the rise of um, social enterprise and the reconfiguration of um, what it means to be uh, a successful entrepreneur a la Musk is the kind of loudest, most visible course of life. You know, that, that's a transformation that's, that's yeah, that's well underway. That says that um, uh, that success is no longer necessarily the accumulation of untold resources, but the way in which you're able to deploy those resources um, to, in some way, make a more extraordinary version of humanity. And that might be technological. It might be humanitarian. It might be cultural. It might be whatever. Um, but updating capitalism to the complexities of the 21st century and the kind of broad opportunities of the 21st century, that's like that's where the power is, I think. Um, and I don't think that we will be nearly as successful, even remotely as successful as we might be as a species, um, uh, 
uh, both in terms of ourselves but also in terms of our relationship with um, our, our environment. Um, if we vest the responsibilities that we have as, as, as people in, um, in institutions, if we divest ourselves of them, if we outsource them to, um, uh, to governments and pan-governmental agencies, I think, um, the 21st century is the century in which um, the individual and the corporation plays an enormous role in carrying out that responsibility, not as a kind of contradiction or a trade-off against its um, its own goals, but as a kind of um, a kind of amplifying of its own goals. I think of all of that. That's a kind of sh- a shift that has started, and so um, all I'd like to do is just kind of do my part in shoving that forwards. Beautiful. And lastly, there perhaps just one or three tips or a couple that to live maybe not a happy but <laughs> perhaps a purposeful or meaningful uh, fulfilled life I'm not sure I'm not sure I'm well placed to give advice on those things um, I think by and large whenever I've given something away uh I've, I've got far more back in one way or another than they gave away. And every time I've held something close, I think I've lost something. Uh, and um, I think there is great joy to be found or meaning to be found, energy to be found um, in... Uh, generosity um, and that can take all sorts of all sorts of forms um, I think yeah so I think that that's really um, important I also think uh, um, relationship with comfort and our expectations of um, comfort and happiness are quite destructive um, and um, there's an interesting question as to whether life is about the pursuit of happiness or, or not. Um, plenty of um, stoic branches of philosophy that might suggest otherwise. Um, but irrespective of whether happiness is a kind of an outcome or not, I think um, I probably have felt most alive and most exhilaratingly alive um, and most grateful to be alive um, when I've put myself in positions of extreme uh, discomfort and, and, and overcome those uh, and so now I sort of I feel like that's the um, that's the that's the the pattern of a life worth living. Somebody um, quoted to us the other day um, a, a line, I think, from Ecclesiastes um, uh, that um, was along the lines of um, uh, 
something like, um, you know, harmony in, in, in one hand is better than toil in two or something like this. And um, it's just the absolute opposite of uh, my thinking about uh, an attitude to life. Yeah, toil in two hands. Beautiful. Oh, thank you so much for your generosity, Matt, well, and all the work you're doing. And, uh, and where I interviewed, uh, I spoke to John Kerr, and he said, yeah, time's the most precious gift we have. And so you yeah, really appreciate your time and, and sharing your insights today. So, yeah, very grateful. Thank you for such thoughtful questions. I'm grateful to have the conversation. Beautiful. And I think you mentioned there's a guy that met you that built the huts and you said, I'm going to build a house with you one day. Oh, yeah, so, yeah, he, yeah, I met a young guy coming out of an apartment that I'd just finished building and um, he'd come to drop something off and um, he said, what you have made here is so, so beautiful. Um, One day, one day you'll have to build a house for me. And then, yeah, five years later, he arrived and... um, He's still one of the most, yeah, precious, precious humans in my life. Um, and, you know, what what I've got to do and what I feel myself capable of doing and um, what the world does or doesn't get to see of that, um, a big chunk of that I owe to him. Yeah. yeah well, I look forward to doing the same and... <laughs> Likewise. Being able to do something with you in the future. Likewise. Fantastic. Likewise. I appreciate it. Cool. Thanks, Doug. Love that discomfort. Oh, what an episode. Nat Cheshire, bringing the truth. Make sure you check out his work. If you're looking to build an exceptional considered property, design something, check out Nat and the team doing such extraordinary work to, it's so much more than architecture, isn't it? And I think you get a sense of that when you're in the spaces he's created, like Britomart, Cityworks Depot, some of the beautiful houses, developments, even design details. So, so thankful for Nat and his time and for all the listeners tuning in. And the real challenge or thing to consider from this episode that I'd love you to take away with you is that stepping into discomfort and really taking action now. What's the one big thing that you can take one big move on and then how can you reassess and go from there step by step bird by bird fork by fork step into the discomfort and feel fully alive in doing so oh love it and would love it for the men out there who want to become extraordinary would join me divine masculine kicking off 2019 step into your greatest gift Share it with the world. Don't believe the myth that you can wait, that one day everything will be different. Take the opportunity to make it today. What are you waiting for? What are you born to do? Do it now. Stop waiting. Feel everything. Love achingly. Give impeccably. Let go. Step into that discomfort. And let's do it as a conscious brotherhood. If you're interested, check it out. Dugget.nz, Divine Masculine, or on the social And thank you to all of you for listening. Really appreciate the support. And as always, think less, experience more. Hope you dug it.